What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And a happy and blessed third week of Advent to you. This is called a Communion here on EWTN, the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you're a non-Catholic yourself, but you're thinking, why is there such a big deal about Advent? And what is Advent anyway? Well, we're here to answer questions like that, or maybe you've got something specific in mind, something about the Catholic faith that you just don't understand. Love to clear that up for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Michael McCall, our producer today, Matt Kabinsky's handling the phones, Jeff Burson doing his usual super job on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, you want to put that question in the comments box because we're streaming right now uh, on both YouTube and Facebook into the comments box goes your question, and then uh, Jeff will see that, and uh, he'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Did you light that uh, rose candle? Not pink. It's rose. Did you um, light that rose candle yesterday? No, no. Need to, write the lo- need to light the rose candle. Better get on yep. it. Here's a great question from Gary, who says, why are atheists so adamant in declaring that there is no God. Yeah, thanks. So that's a difficult question to answer, not because I don't have thoughts on the matter, but because there are lots of atheists and they're not all the same, right? They're not all the same. Uh, I mean, some of the reasons that people are adamant about atheism would be that maybe they personally have suffered at the hands of religious people or religious institutions, or they believe that the, the the net effect of religion on society has been historically bad or harmful. I mean, that would clearly be the position of somebody like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. They definitely think of that point of view. Um, uh, you know, some some think that uh, religious faith is rationally unwarranted, and so they would associate it with with superstition and irrationality. And they may be strong partisans of a rational approach to life, and they think that religion runs contrary to that. Um, so, you know, and some of them may just be uh, embittered people with an axe to grind. I mean, so ranging from goodwill to ill will, um, you know, from the personal to the general, I think the reasons that a person might become adamant of a point of view are as diverse as persons themselves. Okay. And we do appreciate that. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for your email. Here's one from Anthony right here in Alabama in Montgomery. Dr. Andrews, according to Catholic teaching, the soul enters the body at conception. As the zygote or zygote uh, divides, it continues to form one individual. But sometimes the initial division creates two individuals. When does the second soul come into being? During initial conception or when the zygote splits into two separate beings? Thanks, Anthony and Montgomery. Yeah, thanks. So I think it's helpful to review what the church thinks the soul is 
and and the way that it connects to the material body. And the Catholic position mirrors that of the philosopher Aristotle, the ancient philosopher Aristotle, who considered the soul to be the form of the body. Now, form is a deceptive word taken in a colloquial sense because people usually confuse form with shape, or maybe it's not a confusion. That's that's what the word means in, in contemporary English, you know, it means shape. But in classical philosophy, form means something more like the principle of a thing's intelligibility, the, the, um, the structural functional organization that causes a thing to be the, the, the particular kind of thing that it is. So it's a technical term, form. And, and in the case of the human person, something about the human person is that there, we know, we can tell from introspection, that there is an immaterial aspect to the human person because we have this capacity for rational reflection and free choice that's not explicable within a purely materialistic framework. And so we, what, that, that immaterial part of the human person is attributable, attributable to that peculiar form of organization that is humanity, <clears throat> and the principle of that organization is what we call the soul. But you shouldn't think of the soul as like, um, you know, a kind of ectoplasm that gets squeezed into the body like toothpaste into a toothpaste tube. And, and so I think the question about the division of zygotes into two human beings um, is less problematic when you understand the Catholic doctrine, that there is there's something about the organization of the, of the, of the entity that permits an, uh, an immaterial quality to develop, namely this uh, uh, capacity for rational reflection and free will. Um, and beyond that, I can't tell you, but I will tell you that you're not looking at like a, uh, a kind of uh, supernatural ectoplasm that comes in a singular unit that then has to split in half. Like okay. that, that, that's what your question seems to imply, and that's just not the, what Catholics think the soul is. Anthony, thanks for listening to us in Montgomery. Here's a short and sweet question from Samuel. Why do I have to go to church on Sunday? Well, um, until 1917, <clears throat> there was no universal obligation in the Catholic Church for Catholics to go to Mass on Sunday, um, uh, in the sense that canon law didn't mandate it. But, but conscience would mandate it, right? Because yeah. the Mass, uh, the public celebration of the liturgy, is the principal means whereby we as the people of God gather to render honor to God and love to one another. And, and the Christian faith is not meant to be a purely individualistic affair. It's meant to be a corporate affair, and when one is baptized, one joins himself to the society of the Catholic faithful. And, and so participating in the society as a society is kind of integral to being a member of the society. Right? And, and the chief act of this society is to render the proper worship to God, and that takes place in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So uh, in 1917, uh, the Holy See decided to actually make that a matter of, of canon law, and so there's a Mass obligation, but it reflects a, an intrinsic, uh, an essential intrinsic element of Catholic identity, namely that we're members of a community, a society, the people of God that is the Catholic Church, and we come together publicly to offer right worship to God and love and fellowship to one another. Samuel, thanks so much for your question. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones, and we'll begin with Amanda in Illinois. We'll also be talking with Tom, a first-time caller from South Dakota, and we've got a couple of lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. It is a call to communion with Dr. David Anders on this uh, Monday in the third week of Advent here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. Lines filling up quickly, but look, we've got two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll get to those calls in just a second. Let me tell you about a new book now available from EWTN Publishing, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. Now, this book, which is brand new, is drawn from Mother's popular Biblical Spirituality TV series. It was on the air for a long time here on the network. Through her personal accounts and down-to-earth reflections, you'll enter into each passage and experience God's love and guidance like never before. In this book, you will learn practical ways to grow in virtue and combat vice through the precious blood of Jesus. Also, ways you can imitate Abraham and other biblical models of holiness. Also, how similar to yours were the struggle of biblical figures who learned the hard way. And of course, uh, the means by which you can help release an ocean of God's mercy in the world. This book is a winner, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Amanda in Illinois, listening on the EWTN app. A blessed Advent to you, Amanda. What's on your mind today? Hi, yes, you too. Um, I was just wondering if um, I'm sure you prepared yourself for this question, but the Pope's statement today about um, the blessing of um, same-sex couples, um, I know a lot of people are, you know, upset about it. Um, I know for a fact that my my Protestant in-laws are probably going to ask me about it, um, you know, and kind of make it a thing. So I didn't know if you could help me understand that and maybe kind of calm some nerves out there, because I think people are worried about, you know, sure. the future sure. the church. Absolutely. Just... Now, you, you you made the statement in your call that you're sure I had prepared myself for the question. <laughs> Let me tell you what that preparation consisted in. I was running errands this morning, actually dropping my wife off to get her car fixed and headed to the bank. And Matt Gabinski, who's listening right now, he's the call screener for the show, called me and said, Dr. Anders, you better be ready for some questions on this on this thing, this uh, news headline that came out. I said, what are you talking about, Gabinski? And he sent me a link to the article. And uh, and so I, I had all of five minutes to, to look at it before we go on the air today. So that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the massive preparation that I have done. Um, but I have read some of the Pope's remarks about this issue in previous uh, uh, circumstances, and so I, I, the summary that I read from the Vatican News Service confirms what I already understood. And, but I'll, I'll have to read the whole document later. Um, so briefly, what I understand is that uh, the, the New York Times headlines and the major news outlets have misconstrued uh, as usual, what the yeah. what the Pope has said yeah. on this again, issue, right? you know, again, it's um, it, it is not that the Pope has said you can bless uh, gay marriages or gay unions. In fact, he he didn't didn't say that. What he said is that you can bless people who are involved in such unions, and and the text is emphatic that although the couple is blessed, the union is not. And that distinction is drawn explicitly. And that people who approach the church asking for a blessing recognize themselves in this context to be destitute and in need of God's help and do not claim a legitimation of their own status 
but beg that whatever is true, good, and humanly valid in their lives and relationships might be enriched, healed, and elevated by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Right <clears throat> now, to me, that is a fairly clear distinction, and <clears throat> it is a it is a dogma of the Catholic faith that God can come to you when you are in a state of sin. If He couldn't, none of us could ever get out of sin. Yeah. Right. And the, the Catholic position is that when you're in the state of mortal sin, there is nothing you can do on your own to extricate yourself from that situation. That grace is gratuitous. That's why it's called grace. That it's God's initiative, uh, that God reaches down and touches you and pulls you out of it. Um, but you can ask for grace, and the asking itself is a work of grace. That's what we call prevenient grace. There's kind of a grace that comes before grace. There's a grace that comes before sanctifying grace. There's God prompting you to ask for his help while you're presently in the state of sin. You're asking for help, and then God helping, right? And this is—the uh, Pope's comments represent not a liturgical uh, rite in recognition of that fact, but a kind of devotional act where a person who is in an objectively— disordered union, a rejectively disordered situation, might express a desire for God's help, and the Church could make a gesture in that direction by asking for God's help without in any way suggesting that all the circumstances of their moral life were right and just. Mm -hmm. yeah. right? Um, now, you know, as a Catholic layperson sitting back thinking about this, I mean, it's, it's obvious why, to me, why the Pope made this move is because of the current cultural environment and the incredible pressure that it comes from every corner on this, these issues of sexuality. And the large number of people who are in some degree of separation from the Catholic faith over these kinds of issues. And, and so the Pope is encouraging the Church to think creatively about how to be passively present to people who don't yet embrace the, the f fullness of the Church's moral catechesis is the only response Pope Francis would ask to say no and go away until mm. you're fixed <clears throat> before you can come and ask anything of the Church. And the Pope's opinion, obviously, is no. There needs to be something else the Church can do to reach out to people that are in irregular situations to encourage them to come fuller into union with the Catholic faith. Now, Catholic lay people <clears throat> are under no obligation to believe that every action of the Holy See is prudent. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We, we, we have to offer what's called a religious submission of mind and will to the Pope's prudential decisions. That is to say, recognize that he's the Pope and I'm not. But, it, but you know, there, uh, this is going to be an issue where there are going to be differences of opinion, mm, yeah. to be sure. Yeah. And, and that is allowable within the Catholic system. It's, it's possible for a Catholic layperson to say, hey, you know, I think the Pope made a bad call. Um, and uh, or not, or you might take the other point of view. That that's that's okay within the Catholic system because there's not really a there's not a dogma at issue here. This is a this is a question of pastoral prudence on the Pope's part. Okay, uh, Amanda, is that helpful for you? I think so. Thank you. You are most welcome. Uh, thank you, David, for unpacking that. Uh, it certainly has been in discussion today, and I would repeat my usual mantra that I, I often refer to: go with the go with the sources you trust. EWTN. Uh, the Vatican website, Catholic News Agency, Catholic Answers. Uh, you're you're going to get the straight stuff from us, okay? Appreciate that. And Amanda, thank you for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 
288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Advent Monday here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to uh, Tom, a first-time caller in South Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Tom. A blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today? Uh, Thank you very much. Um, I am looking to come into the Catholic Church. I am currently uh, Baptist, but as I'm coming into the idea of joining the Catholic Church, I have I do use medical marijuana, and I don't want to be living in a state of sin throughout my life as a Catholic person. And also, I'm getting married to a Catholic woman, and it's important to me not to bring sin into our marriage, if that's how it's viewed. Um, I do take it for anxiety. Currently, I'm also prescribed Xanax and a few other items that are highly addictive, and unfortunately, I do have addictive tendencies, and those medications... I don't want to become like a junkie or something of that nature. So that's what led me to discuss uh, medical marijuana with my physician and pursue that route. But I just want to know what the Catholic view is on it and if I'd be living in a state of sin by using that as a form of medication. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So first of all, let me say something about the nature of sin in Catholic theology. And um, something does not become a sin because you become a Catholic that would not have been a sin otherwise, right? So whether or not you become Catholic, um, you need to settle the questions of conscience in your own mind, irrespective of whether you become Catholic, right? Because if something is objectively wrong, it's objectively wrong because it's bad for a human person, not because it's bad for a Catholic specifically, right? Um, and uh, and that's because the, the way Catholics think about morality, morality is simply the science of human happiness, as Catholics understand it. What, what, is, what is a human person? What can we rationally understand about a human person? And, and, and what tends to the flourishing of that human person? And if we can rationally discern that something tends to that individual's flourishing or to that society's flourishing, then that has an obligatory force. We, we need to pursue the good and not evil. And good is something that we can know rationally. If something is harmful to us, we need not do it. Okay. Um, I, uh, you know, I am not going to make a medical determination about your situation. I mean, this, I'm not qualified to do it, okay? I'm, I'm not going to intervene and say you should or shouldn't take this or that prescribed treatment that the, your doctor has given you. Um, I think your own desire to avoid uh, addiction is commendable. You know, I don't know what degree of, uh, of impairment uh, your medical marijuana causes to you in ter- terms of your consciousness, what what degree of inebriation that might incur. I mean, from the Catholic point of view, intoxication is problematic because it runs contrary to the good of our rationality, right? Now, there are circumstances in which I might quite legitimately surrender my rationality for a under very specific circumstances for a concrete length of time. Say, for example, if I submit to anesthesia, so that I can, you know, have uh, my gallbladder removed or something. Uh, I'm surrendering my rationality for, you know, whatever long that procedure lasts, half hour or whatever yeah, it is, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I shouldn't go out and, and seek to become intoxicated, right, or put myself at risk of intoxication as a general principle, yeah. right? Um, and, uh, uh, you, you know, anxiety is not a sin. Trying to treat your anxiety seems to me like a very good idea, Right. Um, and uh, and you need to follow your doctor's advice. But, I mean, the long and the short of it is this is not going to keep you from living a flourishing Catholic life. I mean, it, anxiety will be a problem in your life. You need to deal with it. 
Uh, I need to deal with it in the way that it best affords your flourishing as a rational human being, and I'm not going to make a medical determination. Tom, thanks so much uh, for your call today from South Dakota. Glad that you're listening to the great Real Presence Radio. It's called a communion here on EWTN. On Friday, we received an email from our friends at Armor of God Catholic Radio. That is in Texas. They wanted to let us know that they have now added two more signals to uh, their output there at Armor of God. It's a brand new station, KTON, in Cameron, Texas. Uh, That's at 13.30 a.m., also 93.9 FM in Temple, Texas. Thanks to uh, a wonderful, wonderful married couple, Tom and Anne-Marie McNew, and their whole team there at Armor of God for all that they're doing to bring Catholic radio to these new areas. So congratulations to everybody. Let's go now to uh, John in Vancouver, Washington, listening on the great Modern Day Radio. John, blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? John, are you there? Oh, you're talking to someone. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Go right ahead, John. Anyway, I just happened to be talking to a neighbor. Um, so uh, I read about uh, John the Baptist these days uh, as we approach the Christmas season. Yes. And, um, you know, Jesus made the statement about how he was the greatest person to ever be born of a woman. Um, and then I think of Mary, and I wonder... Where do they stand? Who's number one and who's number two? Can you help? Yeah, thank you. So so Jesus says more about John the Baptist than that. He says, among those born of women, nobody's greater than John the Baptist, but the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so there's a, there's a terminus odd quim there with respect to John's greatness, and that would be the point of arrival of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is an eschatological reality, an end-of-time reality that all the Old Testament prophets, including John the Baptist, were looking forward to. John said, uh, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, of course, the kingdom of heaven came in Christ. And John himself said, there's one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, really, w- what Christ is commending here, he's not only commending the virtues of John, but he's commending the great blessing that is the arrival of the kingdom of God. Appreciate your call, John. Thanks for checking in from Vancouver. Crystal, watching us on YouTube, says, Was St. Augustine's view on Christology the same as the Catholic Church's view? Um, yes. So St. Augustine, of course, is a doctor of the Catholic Church, and so his, his writings and opinions are authoritative for Catholics and, uh, and regarded as a safe norm. Now, I don't know what specific Christological question you have in mind, but, um, you know, there, there, were, there were Christological issues that were settled in council after the life of Augustine. So, for example, the Council of Chalcedon is in 451. Augustine died in 430. And so there were developments in Christology that took place after Augustine. As long as you take the question of the uh, chronological development of Christology into account, then I would say Augustine's uh, opinions are safe opinions. Um, Augustine himself underwent significant development, and so scholars usually recognize an early Augustine, a middle Augustine, and a late Augustine. And so uh, you have to take, you have to situate Augustine chronologically, ah. and, uh, and 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 balance one against the other. And Augustine himself corrected many of his earlier opinions at really? the end of his life. Yes, he wrote a book called the Retractions. And he went through all of his early writings, and he said, I wrote this book when I was this old and, and living in this place, and I said this, this, and this, and this, but I now think that I was wrong about X, Y, and Z, and I retract that, and I substitute this other doctrine. So, so you can't just—there's not one static thing called Augustine's Christology. 
right? Mm, it's a okay. like everything else in Augustine. It's a developmental thing. I I wrote one graduate paper on Augustine for a medieval intellectual history course. Uh-huh. Personally, it wasn't on Christology. It was on Augustine's view of the resurrection of the body, and um, and the image that I had was. Um, you know, in Star Trek, when somebody gets beamed up or beamed down, yeah. uh, they become this sort of hazy series of dots, and then they solidify. I so said, that's, uh-huh. that's, that's Augustine's view of the resurrection. It was hazy in the beginning, and then it solidified over time. Oh. And so there's a lot of that in Augustine. I like that. Any, hey, anytime you can bring Star Trek into the equation, I think it's a good conversation. Crystal, thanks so much for checking in. In a moment, we'll get back to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. There's a line available for you here on Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called Communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. We have one line open for you, and that number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN Radio family, KCDM. That is in Burlington, Iowa. They're celebrating 20 years with EWTN. Congratulations to Joe Spillane and everybody at Burlington Divine Mercy from your friends here at EWTN. All right, back to the phones now. Here's Judy, a first-time caller in Minnesota listening on Ave Maria Radio online. Judy, what's on your mind today? Hello, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, Today, uh, or recently, we've been reading about John the Baptist. The readings have been directed that way during Advent. And there are, it seems to me that there are two of the readings that are at odds. And my husband and I have been questioning this. Um, One of the readings is John 1, and it was verses 19 to 28, but it's where um, they ask John if he's Elijah, and he says, I am not. And then then they ask him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? Well, in contrast, Matthew 11 to 11, 15, verse 14 says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, the one who is to come. Whoever has ears ought to hear. So that causes some confusion for us. Bottom line is, has Elijah returned? And and we're asking, are they suggesting Elijah is John? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, Christ tells us that John the Baptist fulfills Malachi's prophecy about the coming of, of, of Elijah the prophet. Mm-hmm. However... It is not literally Elijah the prophet. It is someone who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, and Christ says, that gets the job done. That fulfills the prophecy without it being literally the Elijah. And so that explains the discrepancy and why John himself uh, says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. Now, we have to also, there's a possibility, the the scriptures don't say this explicitly, but Mm. I would contemplate it, that Jesus knew something about John that John himself did not know. Hmm. John responds to this prophetic impulse to proclaim the kingdom of God and to point ultimately to Christ, but Christ himself is the one that interprets that act as fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi. Wow. Fantastic. Judy, thanks so much uh, for your call. Here is Pat in Murrieta, California, watching us on EWTN television today. Pat, what's on your mind today? Uh, Yes, thank you for taking my call. My my question is, uh, basically, uh, can can you go to uh, a wedding uh, with uh, 
two people of the same sex, and is it all right to uh, congratulate them? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, it, this is going to be happening more and more, and these kinds of questions are going to arise more and more for Catholics. I mean, here's the difficulty that we have, that the, the Catholic position, and not just the Catholic position, but the, the historical, rational human position, is that the reason we have an institution called marriage is because when men and women get together in intimate union, they tend to create babies, and babies come into the world needing a society of love and care, and the people who are best capable of doing that and have the responsibility to do that are the people that brought them into the world, namely their biological mother and father. And so the social institution of marriage is just society's recognition of what is at root a biological fact, namely that men and women make babies, and there is a special kind of community that comes into existence with the creation of babies in that way, and that's what we call a marriage. Um, and, and what has happened in the modern world is that people have decided that um, it's not the procreation of children and the establishment of a new community called the family, uh, but rather it's the, it's the condition of having a sexual attachment or a sexual attraction or predilection that society has a vested interest in blessing, right? And that, that, there's not a real good reason for that. I mean, like, we understand why we need society to rally behind men and women having babies, because if you don't have men and women having babies, then you don't have a society. Yeah. You can have a society without, without uh, hallowing and sanctifying everybody's sexual attraction. And so this, you know, this, this, is, a, this is an ideological move. It's, there's no necessity of, uh, of, of reason or biology to, to call this sort of reunion a marriage. And, and by doing so, by calling homosexual union marriage, it really devalues, um, it reduces the male-female union to mere sexual attraction. Because that's the basis of marriage is just sexual attraction. Then, then all of a sudden, my marriage to my wife is about nothing more than sexual attraction. Um, when really, it's something about a lot more than sexual attraction. It's about procreation. Sure. Right? And you can have one without the other, right? And you can have a valid marriage of a man and woman who have a family together who cease being sexually attracted to one another or even capable of having sexual relations, and they can live to a ripe old age and care for their families. And it's all kinds of social benefits that accrue there. Um, and so it really is an injustice. It's an injustice for society to insist on calling homosexual unions marriages, and it risks alienating children from their own mother and father. You know, when, when this issue came to the forefront in France, there was a, uh, there was a movement in France called Manif Poltus, um, and the rallying cry of Manif Poltus was, children deserve a mother and a father. They went right to the heart of what was problematic in this yes, social institution. They yes. went right to the heart of it. It cuts at the, the union of the child to his or her parents, the right of the child to his and her parents. And that's really the issue of justice that's at stake. And so um, it's my judgment, and I think it's the judgment of the church, although I don't speak for the church, I'm speaking for myself as a lay Catholic, I mm -hmm. think I know the mind of the church on this, that, that to call a homosexual union a marriage is an act of injustice. It is, an, it is an act of injustice. That doesn't mean that I wish ill on that gay couple. I don't wish ill on them at all. And I, I want the good for them as human beings, and I want them to flourish in every possible way. But for me to call what they're doing marriage is, uh, is really to, to aid and abet a, a social movement that's going to undercut the good of children in society. All right? So I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to call it marriage. And, uh, and it puts us in a, in a pickle because the people on the other side of this ideological issue are going to construe our refusal to, to acknowledge that as an act of bigotry or hatred or whatever, and suddenly we're the bad people, um, and we're not allowed the dignity of our own consciences here. So 
um, in my judgment, um, it's an act of injustice to to say, you know, yay, gay marriage. It's, it's unjust. It's unjust to me, and it's unjust to society, and it's unjust to children, and so I don't want to celebrate it as such. On the other hand, uh, as a Catholic, I want to show goodwill to all people, even those with whom I disagree, even those who I think are living irregular and unjust lives. I mean, that's what Christ did. Christ went and ate with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, and he said, repent and believe and get your life straight, but he didn't. He went to eat with them anyway, right? So I have to find that pastoral fine line. How can I be pastorally close and present and loving and kind, and, and not just in a perfunctory way, but in a genuine, heartfelt, sincere way to people who are engaged in activities that I think are intrinsically harmful to themselves and others? And, and you know, how to find that fine line is going to be different, I think, in different circumstances. Jesus did it, and he calls us to follow him. And there you go. We hope that's helpful for you, Pat. Thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on this Monday afternoon on EWTN. We're going to uh, go to Jane now. Jane is a first-time caller in New Jersey, also watching us on EWTN television. Hello, Jane. What's on your mind today? I'd like to know what the dark night of the soul is. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. The dark night of the soul is a fairly elevated condition in spiritual development that takes place uh, in the mystical ascent to God. Um, typically, spiritual writers place it between the illuminative phase and the unitive phase of the mystical path, and we'll define those terms later if you want. But basically what it consists in is the sensible and intellectual loss of the presence of God in the soul of the, of the, of the pilgrim where an individual ceases to, to be able to conceive of, feel, sense, experience, have knowledge of the presence of God in any way, so that the soul is left feeling utterly bereft. And it's painful. It's not the same thing as clinical depression. It's not the same thing as clinical depression at all. So a lot of times people will speak about the dark night of the soul if, because they went through a hard time in their life. Um, it's something far more specific than going through a hard time or or having clinical depression, and it, and it is a spiritual state that is guided and superintended by the Holy Spirit, but it is uh, uh, but it can be a necessary stage in the will coming into perfect union with God because uh, it's it's one has to become utterly detached from any kind of selfish or egotistical clinging, including. The, the positive affect that can come from religious faith. Hmm. So, you know, most people, when they convert to Catholicism or they become a Christian, they have a kind of a honeymoon period where everything is bright and glorious and beautiful and, and you know, everything is coming up roses and candy bars and everything's exciting and new. And, uh, and they, they find themselves feeling like they're falling in love with Jesus or falling in love with God over and over and over again, and it's a real period of infatuation. And and that positive affect can become addictive, right? So that one is pursuing the path of holiness or God or Christ or devotion or the Catholic faith or theology because they get all this positive affect. And like a like a honeymoon period, sure, kind of? sure. Oh, okay. And and ultimately, you know, when we say the act of contrition, we say, you know, God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended you and choosing to do wrong and failing to do good. I've sinned against you, whom I should love above all things. That includes my own positive affect. Yeah. I should love God more than I love my own positive affect, my own positive emotional response. And so when the soul can become utterly deprived of that positive emotional response to God, and not just not such sensible emotion, but in the spiritual realm as well, even the, in the intellectual realm, 
um, when I can become deprived of any kind of awareness or consciousness or experience of God's presence and still do the right thing, right? Then, then I'm on the verge of coming to genuine holiness. Um, there is a passage in Habakkuk, and I'm not going to quote it perfectly, but it's something along the lines of, you know, even if the fields are blighted and there are no cattle in the stalls and, and my enemies have ranged around me and I've lost everything, yet I will praise God. Wow. Right? And, uh, and, you know, we can see this in the lives of some great saints. Mother Teresa of Calcutta is a person who tells us, she tells her spiritual director that she lived for decades without any sensible sense of the presence of God, any sense of the presence of God, struggling mightily with the temptation to atheism. Mm. And yet, she never stopped putting one foot in front of the other. She didn't quit going to Mass. She didn't stop praying her prayers of devotions, and she certainly didn't stop ministering to the poor. She kept on in her vocation in spite of the immense pain in her interior life. Therese of Lisieux, another doctor of the Church and great saint of the 19th and 20th century, um, went through a period of her life where even hearing mention of heaven or God or grace or the saints filled her soul with pain and agony. Mm. She writes about it in The Story of the Soul. Um, and yet she's regarded as one of the great saints of, uh, of her era and one of the great saints of our last century. Um, and uh, so the, the doctrine of the dark night of the soul was developed most by John of the Cross uh, in the poem of that name, Dark Night of the Soul. Jane, we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Coming up next on most of these EWTN stations, it is EWTN Open Line Monday. And of course, today it's Monday, so Father John Tregilio will be taking your questions on apologetics. Again, that's at 3 p.m. Eastern right here on EWTN. Most of our affiliates uh, do carry that wonderful program. Let's go now to Sarah, a first-time caller from Chantilly, Virginia, watching us on EWTN television today. Hey there, Sarah. Uh, blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today? Yes, hello. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm following up on an earlier caller uh, where you said, uh, yes, we will be reunited with family, friends, people we knew in our lifetime, but there'd be no marriages like that. Uh, I get that. But uh, I'm sort of hung up on this. If heaven is perfect, more than we can grasp right now, uh, and we're just, you know, thrilled with God, right? Uh, why would we need to be reunited in some fashion with our loved ones? I would love to be comforted uh, to know that I will see my mom, my husband, a, a baby that may have been lost, any of those beautiful relationships in this life, I would love to be comforted to know that. But I don't see it. If if heaven is perfect and we have God right there, I, I keep thinking we don't need each other. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I'm going to give you a really terrible analogy. Uh-oh. Because the best I can do is terrible analogies <laughs> for this kind of thing. Um, when you were a kid and you had your favorite movie, and maybe the great afternoon would be go to the movie theater and watch the great movie. And uh, and you would be perfectly happy and content watching it just as is. But when you show up at the movie theater, your mom turns to you and says, uh, we're going to have an extra treat. Today we're going to watch your favorite movie in 3D. Ooh. And you get the 3D glasses and you go in, and there's a whole dimension of, of enjoyment, of blessedness that you hadn't anticipated that you didn't need but that adds a dimension of, uh, of perfection to it. That's kind of what the, the embellishments of heaven are like. 
that um, specifically St. Thomas Aquinas writes this about the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. He says, why do you need the resurrection of the body? If the soul is perfectly united with God, what does the body add? And he says, well, in intensity, it adds nothing. But in extension, it does add something, right? Because, uh, or another analogy might be, um, you know, listening to your favorite piece of music played on the classical guitar and then listening to the same piece of music played by an entire orchestra, mm, yeah. right? That the, the, the explosion of instrumentation adds a depth and richness, richness. It doesn't mean that the classical guitar piece was lacking anything, right? right? Um, and so that's kind of how we view it, right? That, that God's infinite. And, and, and so there's, 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 no, there's, there's no embellishment that can utterly satisfy the divine magnificence, but, um, but God can infinitely multiply all the media through which we encounter his glory as a kind of um, uh, nod to the inexhaustibleness of the divine beauty. Beautiful. Not a cheesy analogy, by the way. That was a very good oh, analogy. Well, thank you. I liked it. Sarah, thanks so much for your call. Debbie is listening in Oklahoma City on the great Oklahoma Catholic I could Catholic try and make Broad. one about cheese if you uh, like. That's okay. okay. That's all right. Hey, Debbie, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon. Um, I'm calling to ask a question, and I just wanted to let you know, I've been listening to EWTN for the last few years, and because of that, I have come to believe that the Eucharist is the the real body and blood of Jesus. And I'm, I'm Protestant, as of today, but I'm planning to be, learn more about the, the Catholic Church it, through the Bible in a year and the Catechism in a year. But my question is, I keep hearing there's this large percentage of Catholics that don't believe that the Eucharist is the real presence. And so why are those people Catholic? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. So I think there's a lot going on here, and it's a question I've thought a great deal about, and I've read a lot about, and I've studied a lot about it. Um, so first of all, uh, people can be Catholic because they were raised Catholic, their families were Catholic, uh, you know, the parents were Catholic, and so they're, they're brought up within the Catholic culture, the Catholic system, and, uh, and so they identify as Catholics. Their, their attachment to the particular dogmas of the Catholic faith um, may wax and wane for a, a variety of reasons. Um, you know, personally, I'm persuaded that uh, there are many people who live, while they're comfortable with their Catholic identity in general terms, they live kind of at the periphery of the Church's devotional and Eucharistic and liturgical life. And that oftentimes for uh, uh, reasons of, of poor socialization in the Church, right? That... that um, they have been alienated from places within the church where this spirituality is lived vigorously and charitably, and so it hasn't touched them right, in a way that's transformed them. I mean, I've had calls on this show f before from people who've talked about coming, becoming Catholic and partaking of the Eucharist and feeling that their lives were unchanged and therefore drifting away because they had a really kind of a uh, uh, a desiccated view of Catholic spirituality, a desiccated experience of Catholic spirituality, such that if the, you know, if the only thing they were taught was the doctrine of the real presence, and they weren't taught it within the context of a vigorous Christian life, then eventually it seems to be transformative for them. They think it's not doing anything for me, and so you know it's just words, and they and they drift away. Um, and uh, and so I think that you know we have a we have a problem of culture 
within the North American Catholic Church. That's, that's evident, because the oh, number yeah. of Catholics that, that walk away from the Church every, every day. I don't think it's, specifically my own opinion, I don't think it's a failure to proclaim the truth of the Catholic faith. I think we do that. I think it's a failure to incarnate that truth in lived institutions that touch people's lives in helpful ways. Um, I mean, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the faith insofar as it should move us to greater depth of, of charity and virtue in the Christian community, right? That's the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to grow in charity. And when, when people take Catholic dogmas, even the dogma as, uh, as august and noble as the Eucharist, and isolate it from that larger question of charity and virtue within the Christian community, um, then, uh, then, it, then it's just words to them. Right, and it hasn't it hasn't entered transformatively into their life and their personality. All right, and we appreciate that, uh, Debbie. Thanks so much for your call and for your kind words. Let's go now to uh, Teresa, a first time caller in Buffalo, listening on or watching actually on EWTN television today. Uh, Teresa, what's on your mind? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I've been away from the church for a long time, and I discovered EWTN again, and and I'm come back again. Um, I watch it all day long. My question is, in one of the prayers that I have forgotten, there's a, a statement that says, Jesus died, was buried, and descended into hell. Why did he descend into hell before he ascended into heaven? Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. So it does not mean the hell of the damned. So Jesus did not descend to the hell of the damned or suffer alienation from God or anything like that. Um, this refers to the abode of the righteous dead, uh, sometimes called the Limbus of the Fathers, where Christ went to uh, liberate the righteous souls of the Old Covenant, like Abraham, Isaac, Noah, um, and the prophets. Okay. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for your call. Lisa is listening to us in Virginia on the EWTN app. A blessed advent to you, Lisa. What's on your mind today? Thank you. You too. Um, I was having a conversation with my sister who was born and raised Catholic, but not practicing. She's non-denominational. And we got on the subject of going to heaven, and I said, well, I'm not promised to go to heaven. I don't know that I'm going there. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I could commit some sin years from now and not go to heaven. And she said, well, I know I'm going, and my name is written in the book of something, the, the book of Jesus, the Lamb of God, or something, and I didn't know how to explain to her our thoughts. Sure, the okay, absolutely, yeah. So this is, a, this is a key difference between Protestants and Catholics. The Protestant position is that through faith alone, one is accounted righteous for Jesus' sake. So you don't actually have to be objectively righteous— you just have to believe that God has accepted you, and God will, in fact, accept you for Jesus' sake, even though you remain objectively sinful. This is Luther's famous doctrine of simultaneously just and a sinner, simul justus et peccator. You can be just in God's eyes, even though you're objectively sinful. Hmm. Now, the problem, and, and of course, the, the point of this doctrine in Protestantism is precisely to enable this kind of declaration, that a person can be relieved of any anxiety at all about their future state, and claim to know with absolute certainty that they're going to go to heaven when they die. And in fact, the Westminster Confession, the Presbyterian Confession of Faith, states that a man can have infallible certainty of his election, of his of his salvation in this life. So that's a that's a key part of Protestant history and doctrine. 
a lot of problems with it. The most the most important problem with it is that it, Jesus didn't teach it. Mm. The apostles didn't teach it. It's not found in Scripture. It's not found in the teaching of the apostles or of Christ or any part of the tradition. It uh, it 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 has arisen from a gross misunderstanding of what Saint Paul said in Romans chapter three and four. Um, but uh, but it's not biblical. Um, and it's also uh, paradoxically, my experience was with this doctrine of absolute assurance, is that it's a double-edged sword because the uh, the Protestant says, well, if I have true faith, then I know for sure I'm going to heaven. Oh my gosh, how do I know I have true faith? <laughs> yeah. Right? And so this is kind of infinite regress of of mm. uh, you know the flipping flipping back and forth between a kind of presumption that I know for sure I'm going to go to heaven, and then a kind of despair that I don't really have true faith after all. And there are a lot of Protestants have tried different ways of dealing with that problem. One of them was uh, something called the practical syllogism, whereby if you have true faith, your life will show it in good works. And even though you're not saved by good works, good works are kind of testimony to true faith. Mm. Of course, that breaks down the assurance also, because then how do you know your works are yeah, good? And, yeah. and so it's, or, or you slide into antinomianism, where it just doesn't matter what your moral life looks like. And so this, it's a big mess of, in Protestant history, how to work out this doctrine that is never taught in the Bible. Oh, there you go. So what the Catholic Church teaches is that grace transforms us, fills us with love and virtues, and enables God to accept us because we're actually genuinely transformed. And grace is on offer to us by faith and through the sacraments in the church. And so if we maintain our fellowship with the church and stay away from mortal sin and have frequent recourse to the sacraments and persevere to the end, then we'll be saved. And so that doesn't leave us at all hopeless. It doesn't leave us bereft or, or grieving or anxious or worried because we the, the, the trick is, you know, stay with Christ. Yeah. And I, I would analogize it to saying, you know, well, how can I know for sure that my marriage won't end? Well, don't leave your wife. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, you can do that, right? So don't leave Christ. Don't walk away, and you'll, you'll right. get there one day. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful I can do that with God's help, with God's help. Sure. You know? That doesn't leave me hopeless. It gives me something really concrete I can do that gives meaning to my life. Well, Lisa, thank you for your call. Real quickly, David in Genoa, Ohio, how did John the Baptist gain his authority? Yeah, he was a prophet the way the prophets of old. So the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist saying, dot, dot, dot. And there it is. Uh, David, thanks for your, uh, your call today. Glad that we could get that question in at the very last moment here. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio, live at 2 p.m. Eastern each and every weekday. Check out the podcast. Michael will have that posted for you in the next couple of hours at EWTN, uh, EWTN.com forward slash radio. Look for the words Podcast Central. Click on that and you will find it. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. Be sure to join us for uh, the Tuesday edition of Call to Communion coming up in 23 hours. See you then. God bless.